0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Temple Baptist Church. While we hope you can join us in person, our prayer is that this message will encourage you to love God and serve Him in a deeper way. Well, good morning, everyone. So grateful that you decided to join us uh, this morning. I have to admit, last night when I saw the snow starting to come down, I was like, no, no more snow. But woke up this morning, the sun was shining, I thought I can face another day. So um, if you're uh, here for the very first time, as already been mentioned, you are our special guest and we're absolutely delighted uh, to have you here. And I uh, also want to give a shout out to those who are joining us online from wherever you may be watching in the world, we're so glad to have you with us as well. I also wanted to say, for those who are new among us, <clears throat> we are a church that is driven by a purpose. We are a church on a mission. We try our very hardest to keep the main thing, the main thing around here. And for us, the main thing is connecting people to Jesus and to one another. And sometimes your life gets so busy, we kind of get distracted from what the main thing is. And so we're always reminding ourselves, the main thing around here is to Keep connecting people to Jesus and to one another. We we are absolutely convinced, like from the pit of our souls, we're convinced that the most important relationship any man, woman, boy or girl can have is a relationship with Jesus. And not just any kind of relationship. I'm talking about a real relationship, a life-giving, a vibrant, on-fire relationship with Jesus. And we believe life is better when you do it together. In a day and age when so many people are connected because of technology, we're discovering that more and more people are actually lonely. And so that's why it's so important to us that we connect uh, one another. So that's it in a nutshell, who we are. We're a church, on a mission to connect people to Jesus and to one another. Well, six weeks ago, we began a journey into this series that we've entitled "Worst Advice Ever." <laughs> And what we are discovering is that there's a lot of advice that is freely given. You know, even when you're not asked, sometimes maybe a parent or an in-law will give you advice on how to raise your children. You didn't ask, but they are free to give it. Or maybe somebody uh, gives you advice on what to wear and what not to wear. And you're like, I didn't, I didn't ask you. But people are very free right to hand out advice and sometimes it's good advice sometimes it's bad advice and what we're trying to discover is to be able to distinguish between the good and the bad because sometimes when we act on the bad advice you know sometimes it may be just inconvenient other times though it can be quite catastrophic and so this series has really been based on your contributions. I want to thank you again for those who took the time to participate uh, in this series. And I had asked you, could you just share some of the worst advice that you'd ever given? And basically, they, they fall into three categories. We've said this before. It deals with the worst advice that ever been given about finances, uh, the worst advice about um, Relationships, and then about spiritual things. And so the first two weeks, we, we looked at finances, and we tried to look at it biblically and practically. What does this mean for us? And boy, the, the Bible gives a lot of information, a lot of help, a lot of advice when it talks about managing our money and, and the dangers of, of avoiding uh, debt as well. And then we looked at relationships. For three weeks, we dealt with relationships. And first of all, I just want to say thank you for coming back because I know last week was kind of a tough message. So thank you for uh, being back here. This week, and then we're starting now on this whole area of spiritual things. Now, I know people would say, "Well, aren't finances and relationship doesn't it all deal with your spiritual life?" And I would say, "Yes, it does." But for this series, uh, when I use the word spiritual things, I'm going to deal with basically the categories that you have listed here, and those categories basically are my relationship with God. I've been given some bad advice about my relationship with God. I, I have been given some bad um, advice about my confidence in God, or, or my confidence in the Bible. So let me just read some of the things that you filled out, some of the um, things that you were told that you have listed as some of the worst advice you'd ever received. Here's one. Now, by the way, you may be here this morning and listen to some of these advice and go, actually, I agree with that. And that's okay. We're, we're glad that you're here. You may not agree with all these things that people listed down as Uh, Bad advice, or the worst advice that ever been given, but we're going to look at some of them. So number one here, someone wrote, I was told that God will let you down, so be prepared. Uh, I was told that that God stuff is nonsense. (laughs) Religion is just for the weak. God can't do anything to help you, you're beyond help. Sounds like a good friend, a really good friend. Uh, here's another one God cannot forgive that sin. Clean yourself up before you come to God. Uh, someone said, Don't believe in miracles. God doesn't do that anymore. Don't save the world, save yourself. If you just had enough faith, God would heal you. This is terrible. You deserve hell because of what you've done. Don't get carried away with that God stuff. That's another one. Hey, don't trust the Bible. The Old Testament and the New Testament contradict each other. They went on to say, now that I've studied the Bible, I'm amazed actually how they dovetail together. Uh, scientists have proven Christianity to be wrong. Evolution is the better theory to believe. It's only, actually, this, this was actually told to me a number of years ago, this one. It's only the red letters in the Bible that are important. <laughs> uh, for those who may, aren't, especially a lot of the older Bibles had all the words of Jesus in red. And so that's all you need to worry about is those letters, those words. The Bible isn't God's word. It only contains God's word. You cannot trust the Bible. Archaeologists have proven the Bible to be wrong. The Bible is full of contradictions. It's not trustworthy. my goodness. Not all the Bible is true. Be careful uh, when you read it that you believe the right parts. Well, that's some of the advice that you've received uh, about the Bible. Anytime, anytime that the Bible is under attack, anytime that the Bible's questioned, anytime that the Bi- someone says to you, the Bible is filled with lies, I want to suggest to you that you have been given an incredible opportunity. You have been given a gift to dialogue, about your faith. You have been invited into a conversation about your faith. And this morning what I wanted to do, I, I'm gonna try my hardest not to make it some kind of a college course because I want us to be inspired and encouraged by God's word, but I wanna try to give you some, some helpful things together uh, so we, we know we can intelligently discuss uh, our Bible and the contents of it. In 1 Peter 3, 15 many of you may know this verse already. It says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that is you have. Listen, people are going to ask you about your faith. In fact, some people may even be accusatory with your faith, may feel like you're you're being under attack, and, and we're told, be ready. Be ready to give an answer when people do ask questions about your faith. And I love the next part of that verse. It says, but do this with gentleness and respect. Be gracious when you interact about your faith. It's way too easy for Christians to kind of get really, you know, get hard-nosed, pound people over the head, and, and so far from being gracious. And we're told when people do ask, don't get your, you know, your wall up and your fences up. like, Be gracious, be gentle, be respectful. I like what one old black preacher said down south. You have the right, he said, to remain silent, but you best not. (laughs) I just want to tell you, you can dialogue intelligently with people about our Bible this morning. This week, um, I was doing some reading, and I stumbled across some research that had just recently been done. And uh, when I read it, to be, to be honest, I, like, I, I was, I don't know, I just felt very unsettled. I was, it was uneasy. I, I felt very concerned. Actually, when I first read it, I was, I was actually overwhelmed when I was reading this research. Uh, we have said for quite a while, it's about how important it is to reach the next generation. In fact, during our 80th anniversary weekend, we talked about that, reaching the next generation. That really, as a church, we're only one generation away from extinction. So how important it is that we continue to reach that next generation. And the research was done on Generation Z. For you Americans, Generation Z. Okay? And uh, that's the generation of people who were born between 1995 and 2000. And 14, and the Barna Research Group, which is a very reliable, well-known, credible organization, they did a study that revealed that teenagers today, that Generation Z, are twice as likely as adults to label themselves as atheists. 13% of teenagers would say they are atheists, while only 6% of adults would say that. And like millennials, this generation... <coughs> Zed would say that they're spiritual but not religious in general generation Zed is to is kind of biblically uh, illiterate Uh, they're attracted to social causes a faith that is privately engaging but socially irrelevant would not be attracted to them nor should it be by the way in fact James the half-brother Jesus addresses that He says, a faith that has no good works is a dead faith. But a faith that is alive and vibrant and growing is filled with good works. And so I completely understand why a generation Z would not be attracted to just a faith that's privately engaging, but irrelevant publicly. Makes complete sense to me. The research says that one in five teens, 21% of today's teenagers would choose a negative judgmental image to represent the church. I'd say we have a PR problem. I would say we need to step up our game. Parents, we can no longer take this lightly. The generation that is following behind us need to know that faith in Christ can be real and vibrant and life-changing and growing. If our faith is dead, no wonder the generation that is following us is not interested and would prefer to identify themselves as atheist or at best agnostic. When there is no life change, It's no wonder the generation coming up would say Christianity is irrelevant. And sometimes, quite frankly, the way churches have treated people with no grace uh, whatsoever, people observe that and go, why would I want that? Why would I want any of that? Now I realize we, we make mistakes. We're not perfect people, of course. I understand that. But there's something about a person who can humbly say, you know what, I actually did that one wrong. I got that one wrong. There's something about being able to go humbly and ask for forgiveness. There's something about offering forgiveness when you have been wronged. That makes a difference. In fact, a couple weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' words himself. Remember he said, we said, uh, or Jesus said, people are going to know that you're a follower of mine by the way that you love one another and the way that you treat one another. It will have nothing to do with the theological position that you take. Jesus says, it is our actions that will speak far louder than our words. And we know that to be so true. If our faith makes no difference in who we are, can we blame the generation that's following behind us to say it's just irrelevant? Last week, you may have seen this. Uh, it's been kind of on the media. But last week on the TV show, uh, The View, which is a kind of a talk show where they talk about current events and they can get very political. And so they were they were discussing, kind of mocking, I guess, the Vice President of the United States' uh, faith in Christ. And he had made the comment that he reads his Bible, he says he prays, uh, he says, you know, I, um, I speak to God, and, and then God speaks to me, and through his word and, and what impresses upon his heart. And, and one of the co-hosts, Joy Bears, have compared his, his Christianity with mental illness. That was on, I think, Wednesday, on the in the middle of the afternoon. Uh, Jimmy Kimmel, actually, just I noticed on Thursday night in his opening monologue, which is a, kind of a stand-up comedy a show that he has, he, he almost came out and said, the shootings on Thursday at, in Florida were, were almost Christian's fault. He said, and I quote, it's those rich Christians that won't give up their guns that cause this kind of problems. You know, I was thinking to myself, There really is a war on our faith. Now, I realize it's not the kind of war that many Christians on the other side of the world are being under attack. Like countries like Nigeria or Iran or Pakistan or Egypt or Syria. But there is a war against our faith. But I want to tell you, you don't need to be frightened with it. Be engaged with it. That's what I'm saying. Even what's happening in our own country, we have this increasing hostility and intolerance towards uh, Christian beliefs and values, and many people just perceive this to be an attack on freedom of religion. It's evident, obviously, by this new law that the new mandate—you know—about uh, applying for summer jobs. That if you don't believe in our ideology, you are not eligible to apply for this. See, in current Canadian culture, you are free to be a Christian as long as it doesn't actively, if you don't actively live out your faith. It's fine as long as you don't vote your faith. It's fine as long as you don't take a stand in relationship to your faith. In other words, it can be privately engaging, but it must remain socially irrelevant. That's what our culture says. I realize that the Bible is an old book in fact, it's an, it's an ancient book. And so I can understand why people would say, how can such an old book, an ancient writing, be relevant today? I actually think it's a respectable question. I think it's an honest question. I think it's a reasonable question. And so this morning, I want to talk just a, a little bit about where did our Bible come from? How can you actually have confidence in the Bible that you hold in your hands. Maybe it's just blind faith that we have that this is true. Uh, a couple of years ago, I don't know, maybe eight or nine years ago, I meant to look it up to find out for sure, but there was a book that came out, a big Hollywood blockbuster movie. You may remember it. It was called The, the Da Vinci Code. And uh, of course, you know, a lot of Christians were up in arms about what it was saying and But in in reality, I kept thinking, man, this is an opportunity to really engage with people because they're asking questions about this. And in that particular book, which a lot of people would say this could be true as well, that the Roman Emperor Constantine is the one who actually is responsible for the Bible because of his political pressure that he was under and because he wanted to make Jesus more than he was. And because he was trying to suppress women, he, he financed and, and put together the Bible in 325 A.D. Now, that particular book, um, The Vinci Code, that was put out, who, who was propagating this theory, uh, 80 million copies were sold, and it was translated into 56 languages. And, and I can remember, I remember one time being at a restaurant, and I actually heard a conversation going on at the table next to me. And they were talking about it, and they were like, I didn't, like, I didn't know. I heard this lady say, I didn't know Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. I didn't know he had a child named Sarah that they shipped to France. How did I miss that? And as I was listening to the conversation, I just realized, you know, people were engaged and just soaking that all in. And and that book, along with other people, that said, you know, actually there's, there's 80 Gospels, 80 books of the Bible that are missing that we, we don't have in Scripture. And once again, the reason that we don't have them is because they were trying to, to suppress uh, things about Jesus, that they only wanted people to know certain things about him, especially not his, hum, his humanity. And that Constantine had this agenda now, the, fa- the thing is, if those things are true, let me tell you, our faith is on shaky ground. Uh, we w- we'd have to begin to ask ourselves, can we trust the Bible? And the thing is, when people ask us, the Bible says, be ready to give an answer. Be ready. I love that word, always, always. Always be ready to give an answer. In other words, questions are going to come, so be ready. In fact, there's going to be direct and indirect attacks on your face, so be ready. Like, always be ready. And by the way, it is okay, it is okay to say to people, I don't know the answer to that. But that is a great question. That's a good question. I've never thought of it that way. I don't know the answer, but I'll get back to you on that. That's okay to say that. We're not just walking theologians everywhere we go. I say that all the time, actually. Thank the Lord for Google. (laughs) Of course, I have to decipher what's true and what's not true as well. If the Bible was really, say, written by Constantine, if it's really true that he reinvented Christianity and he was trying to cover up the secrets of Jesus' marriage, and that he was trying to suppress women, and that really it's not about Jesus Christ being the Savior of the world, we would have to really reconsider why we're even here this morning. The Bible has to be accurate. We place our trust, our faith, and it. it is the foundation of our faith, See, the Bible, when it was written, couldn't have had a bad day. Like, oh, well, I read that. He must have been having a bad day when he wrote that. No. We put our, our faith and trust in this. It better be accurate. And so some say, well, Constantine just commissioned and financed the new Bible. He omitted all the things about Jesus' humanity. He embellished the Gospels that made him look like godlike. And some would say that, well, the, what? They were, the gospels, those 80 gospels were outlawed. That They were gathered up and they were burned so nobody could have a record of it. So the question is, how do we know something that, you know, a thousand years old is valid for us today? How do we know when the Bible was written and who wrote it? You know, how do I know, Donald, that the Bible wasn't tweaked along the way? You know, that it wasn't changed? Surely over the years, we have a different version of what we had a while ago because of all the, you know, the translations and that. It's got to be a different Bible today than what people had years ago. There had to be some creative editing along the way. And some would even suggest that everything that church fathers have taught are absolutely false about Christ. So it's kind of key to know where did our Bible come from? And it's also important to know that there was actually a standard used when compiling the Bible. A standard was used. Like, for instance, if I stood up here and I said, you know, my foot actually is a meter long. You would say, bogus, is not a meter long, liar, crazy. And so... For you to prove that my foot wasn't a meter long, what would you do? You'd go get a standard. The standard, go get the yardstick. You put the yardstick next to my foot and you go, look at Donald. (laughs) It's not a meter long. That's the standard. So in the early church, there was a standard when compiling these books of the Bible. The first standard was Apostolic origin, which is kind of a, is a big word for this, The Bibles had to be written by someone who was an eyewitness. saw the eyewitness account of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. That was one of their standards. Is it written by one of the apostles who actually saw with their own eyes that Jesus was raised from the dead? That was one of the standards. Now, the other one was, is it it doctrinally sound? Does it fit with what Jesus was saying? And then another standard was, is it even accepted amongst the early churches throughout the Mediterranean area? So those were a couple of standards. Who was it written by? Was it written by an eyewitness account of the bodily resurrection? Or somebody who actually witnessed the life of Christ? Does it agree with what Jesus said? And is it widely accepted by those early churches? Now, the New Testament was written between 50 and 90 AD, so right after Christ died. And so, I've often thought those writings were so close to when Jesus died that if any of these things that we're talking about in the Bible were wrong, people would have still been alive to say that is not what he taught. That's not true. It was so close, the originals, to the life of Christ. So how does the, how does the New Testament stand up against some of those ancient uh, writings from literature? L- look at Plato, for instance. The New Testament is the most credible document of antiquity that we have, and when you compare it to the works of Plato or compare it to the works of Julius Caesar, uh, how does it stand up against that? So, for example... I'm probably going to forget half of these dates, but I'm going to try my best just to demonstrate this here. If we had a timeline like this and we say this is 2018 and we say this is Christ's life, okay, and then let's just go way back here. Okay, Plato. Okay, just looking at Plato. Plato actually lived uh, 427 to 3, I think 58. I think that's, I think that's what it is. Yeah, AD, okay? That's when he lived, that's when he wrote. We have copies of Plato's work, okay? We, have, we actually have copies of his work. Yes, thank you so much. That would have been so confusing. We have a copy. Listen to this. We have a copy of Plato's work from 12... No. 900 A.D. Okay? We have a copy of his work, 980. A.D. This is 1,200 years later. We have a copy of Plato's work. People were astounded. Like, what? Plato's work? And we actually have... Seven, seven copies, seven copies of this incredible work done by Plato. And people, we marvel over that. It's 1,200 years old. And we go, wow, that's absolutely incredible. Now, in 1947, which for some of you, you were actually born before that. Some of you were born right around that. I mean, this is current history what I'm saying. But in 1947, an incredible discovery was made that literally changed everything about our Bibles. See, scholars, though they believe that the Bible was accurate, the earliest copy, the earliest copy we had ever had was uh, 1100 BC. 80, oh my word. Actually, I only do that to see if you're paying attention. (laughs) And you are. So, the earliest copy we had was 1,100. Okay? And, and, And scholars, biblical scholars would say, oh, I wish we had something that was closer. And in 1947, they actually found some copies, some shepherds found it in the Qumran caves. And they dated, now listen to this, they dated back to 200 B.C. Old Testament manuscripts, 1100 A.D. is the earliest copy that we had. We go back 1,300 years and they're just alike. Like, that was such a huge jump back to go that far back and go, wow, and the Bible is still accurate. Now, Let's move along. As I said, the King James was 1100, but they were able to go back to 200 BC. 1300 years back proves to be exactly alike. Now, let's, compa- uh, let's compare Plato's work in the New Testament. The New Testament was written, this is Christ's life, most scholars say between 50 and 90 AD. <laughs> now, this is what's amazing. Right now, the earliest copy that we have is around 130 A.D. Just 40 years. Like, less than 100 years, all of the New Testament we have copies of. So going right back almost to the very original time that uh, Jesus was alive Now, if this was a secular writing, we'd be like, whoa, that is amazing. But sometimes it's not looked at by the world. Like, oh, yeah, so? It's still a copy of a copy. It's not that close. Let's look at something else. Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar, okay, writes about events from, I think it's 50 yeah 50 to 58 BC okay the writings of the gaelic history the wars and people look at that as the absolute truth man we have a copy of history that julius caesar wrote and he the wars took place here the closest copy we have is a thousand years later and we have 10 copies Ten copies of Julius Caesar's work of the Gaelic Wars. And we are like, whoa, 10 There They're a thousand years from the time the event took place. And we marvel. I have this to kind of illustrate to us. When it comes to manuscripts. Plato, we have seven copies. I have seven pieces of paper here. We have seven copies that are, what? Twelve hundred years later, and we're marveled at it. We come along, and we have Julius Caesar's of the Gallic Wars, the Gallic Wars. We have ten copies, ten copies, a thousand years old. Do you know how many manuscripts the Bible has? Right here, I have five. This is a five hundred pack. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 2,500 sheets of paper here. If I took this and we it again, I said, okay, here's another 2,500. And then I stacked it again, and I did that 10 times. We have 25,000 copies of the, of the manuscripts of the Bible. 25,000. And we have copies almost to the original time that it started. This, as I said, if this was a secular book, no arguments, people would take this as the truth beyond a shadow of a doubt. And yet there's doubts. Let me show you something else that's in our Bibles. In our Bibles, there are actually, people refer to as messianic prophecies, just a layman's term, predictions about Jesus. There's actually predictions about Jesus that took place 700 years before Jesus was born. Now imagine this. They are making predictions 700 years before Christ was ever born. The chances of those actually coming to fruition, let's be honest, it's like millions of nothing. Let me give you a couple. Psalm 41.9 said that he would be betrayed by a friend what how would they know that 700 years early he would be betrayed could be that specific not by his people but by a friend actually what about Zechariah 11 12 that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver you're telling me 700 years earlier they predicted that jesus would actually be sold for 30 pieces of silver yeah what about isaiah Fifty three seven, that actually he would be silent amongst his accusers. Like you would think, if you're being accused, you're going to be quickly to defend yourself to prove yourself. But actually, seven hundred years earlier, they said the Messiah Jesus would remain silent before his accusers. What about Psalm thirty four twenty, that his bones would not be broken? We know those people were hanging on the cross. They would break their legs so they would die quicker. But they didn't break the bones of Jesus. What about Isaiah 53, 9? That he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Unheard of. How could someone who's been accused of something be buried in a rich man's tomb? They're kind of castaways. What about Micah 5, 7 that talks about exactly where he will be born in Bethlehem, a podunk town. You're telling me of all the towns that they could predict it, they picked Bethlehem. Over 300 of these prophecies, these predictions about Jesus, and everyone fulfilled by Jesus himself. I'm telling you this morning, you can have confidence in God's word. But I realize that in the day and age that we live, there will always be a bias, right? I mean, Plato does not confront us with the claims of who Jesus Christ is. It's easy to accept him. But because of our sin nature, we don't want Christianity to be true. We say, nah. And so, so many people cast doubts and shadows on the New Testament, because there's our towering implications of our life. Because if God really did send his son to die on a cross for our sins, and if it's true that he rose again, if all of that is really true, then there's some serious accountability for my life. So some would rather read a, a whacked off novel, novel or believe some bogus documentary or whatever, as opposing to face the reality of a holy God. Now, there are a lot of authors and speakers who have a vested interest in muddying up the waters of Christianity by saying this or that. Many have agendas to kind of dis-Christianity. But I want to, challenge, I want to encourage you this morning. You can know. This is God's inspired word this morning. You can interact. You can dialogue intelligently with people. And you know what? If you live by this, read this, it begins to change your life. You know, the more I read and listen to what God says, you know what? This is a true statement. The better the man I become the better the pastor I become, the better the son, a better brother, a better uncle, a better employee, a better team member when I let this begin to change my life. I'm telling you, you can trust this. This is not just a book. It's not just a novel. It's not just a story. This is God's Word. And people have tried for thousands of years to bring this book to its knees. But Christianity continues to stand the test of time. It's been proven over and over again. It's true, some countries burn it or ban it and speak against it and burn it. One thing is for sure, you cannot ignore it. So bring it on. Let's get engaged. Let's not be afraid. When our faith is questioned, or diss. Use the opportunity to engage. In fact, I love 2 uh, Timothy. We, many of us would know that 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It straightens us out. It teaches us to do what is right. It is God's way of preparing us in every way, fully equipped for every good thing. God wants to do. You can have confidence in your Bible this morning. Blind faith is not what is needed required for this. Over and over again it proves itself to be true. And what I love what I love about the Bible that it teaches me and describes to me a God who is so gracious, so full of grace, that he actually would forgive sins. A grace that extends much farther than our sin. Our sin reaches far, but don't you love it that God's grace always just goes a little farther? And the thing is about God's grace, it doesn't just cover some of your sin it doesn't even cover most of your sin it covers all of your sin grace that is greater than all of my sin and he offers it today he offers it today his grace is sufficient to cover your sin you no longer have to try to prove yourself to God get yourself cleaned up No, God takes you just as you are with all your pain, all your baggage, all your brokenness, all your past mistakes because his grace is greater than your sin. And we learn that. That's his word to us today. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I just want to say thank you Thank you for the faith that we can have in Jesus Christ that changes our life. Lord, it's true that we live in a culture where people question our faith, want to know if there's any reality to the faith. And Lord, I I just pray that as believers here, those who are genuine followers of Christ, Lord, that we wouldn't, this wouldn't frighten us. Lord, but that we would actually look at it as an opportunity to dialogue and engage with those who don't know you. Lord, we don't need to be afraid. We just need to be engaged. And so I pray for us as a church family, as a congregation, that we will be engaged in our city when our colleagues, when our friends question us. Lord, that we'll be quick to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. So, Lord, we're just very thankful for what you do, what you're doing in our lives, and, Lord, that we can walk out of here with boldness and confidence in who we believe. And then, Lord, for those perhaps maybe here this morning that, oh, they've gone to church and they know things about you, but honestly, they just don't know what it is Have a real relationship that's life-changing, growing. God, I pray that today, that you would open their eyes to realize, so they would realize that there is a grace that is greater than their sin. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.